Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to part two of SlamFest, a discussion of SLA Marshall's works. We'll let Tom Brusino introduce all the guests once again, and then we'll get you right back into the conversation where we left off in part one. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the podcast from War Room, the online journal of the United States Army War College. Thank you for joining us for another episode. I'm Tom Brusino, a professor at the War College and an editor for War Room, where I work on the Dusty Shelves series, where we take new looks at older or forgotten books and documents. In keeping with that, our subject today is Brigadier General Samuel Lyman Atwood Marshall, better known as SLA Marshall, or sometimes by his byline, SLAM. Uh, I am joined virtually t- today by three guests. Matthew Ford is a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex, now awaiting publication of his second book, Radical War, Data, Attention, and Control in the 21st Century. His first book is on small arms innovation and called Weapon of Choice, Small Arms and the Culture of Military Innovation. Robert Engen is an assistant professor in defense studies at the Canadian Forces College and the author of two books on infantry in the Second World War and multiple articles and chapters on SLA Marshall. Rob Thompson is a historian with the films team at Army University Press out of Fort Leavenworth. He is the author of Clear, Hold, and Destroy, Pacification in Fu Yen and the American War in Vietnam. Matthew, Robert, Rob, welcome to A Better Peace. It's great to have you all here today. Very good. And uh, very, very pleased to be joining you from Kingston, Ontario. And I'm happy to be joining you from frozen Kansas City. Very good. All right. So uh, as we say, and I'm here in Pennsylvania uh, at, at the War College. Once you switch from that and start to think about how Marshall can be deployed rhetorically within the organization as a way of framing arguments that lead to technical change and technical improvements, what you get is a completely different interpretation of Marshall. Because in those circumstances, his, if you like, journalism is very persuasive. And it's very persuasive amongst a bunch of people who were actually resisting change rather than embracing it. So I guess my my issue, and I, th- I think all all your points are are well may well taken. I think he was. Uh, I would only say that I think that the the slogan he made was useful for uh, military professionals. Not, not you know, and, and when you're saying engineers, you're not talking about military engineers as as a branch. You know, you're you're talking about uh, weapons designers Absolutely. and things like that, right? So. Um, but I think for the for military professionals writ large, officers uh, especially who are trying to figure out new tact, you know, the, the the new tactics of this new battlefield, I think he created a slogan that was useful for them, and so they they uh, they used it. But I don't think that his actual understanding of a tactical of tactics, modern tactics, uh, was anything beyond extremely elementary. So I would say, you know, so so to me, the the, the problem, the the big problem I have with the ratio of fire thing, and I you know, say this is he was kind of asking the wrong question or asking only part of the question, and 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 uh, Robert kind of hit at this earlier, you know, when he when he he says that they, you know, he talks about the the various weapons that are available to them, and he's primarily focused on rifle fire, and I think he picks this up, uh, he picks this up from a World War One argument, right? So this is the the John Pershing rifleman 
argument. Like we, you know, we build our, our fighting formation around the, around the, the riflemen and everybody gets this, this focus that, that thinks that what Pershing was saying and what, and it's not just Pershing, it's the whole, it's the whole leadership of the American Expeditionary Forces and first army in world war one. What they're, what they're really saying in, in preparing troops is like, this is a, a training thing for individual soldier motivation. Uh, I think, you know, Patton says it later on, if you shoot, you move, right? So there's this, you know, there's a connection between, uh, between firing your weapon and then going. Uh, and, and it's really that the movement, the maneuver is more, is the maneuver with the fire is what's most, is most important for an individual soldier. Um, but that's all they're talking about with the rifleman. At no point does John Pershing wander off to the front in the Meuse-Argonne or Saint-Miel or anywhere else and go to guys like, Hey, you guys need to you know, fix bayonets, fire your rifles and take that position. Uh, not at all, not even close. Uh, the tactics aren't like that. And what is, I think what, what I think that Marshall, I know, I'm, I'm, actually I know this, I know Marshall is missing, is that the dilemma really is how do you build a combined arms team? And he hints at this, but he ducks it. He ducks the question because I don't think he really understands that, you know, small unit tactics, which is, you know, so he, so he points out and, and Robert, Robert pointed this out too, that he, um, you know, he says, oh, well, the guys with, with Browning automatic rifles and flamethrowers, you know, they move more, they fire more. Well, well, right. That's the point. The point is, you know, the point is there's plenty of reason not to fire your rifle. There's plenty of reasons it's stupid to fire your rifle in a fight uh, because you have artillery and you have air power and you have tanks and you have mortars, which, you know, he hardly talks about at all, if at all. And you have all of these other weapons that you're trying to use in concert with each other. You're trying to teach these guys how to fight with all of this stuff together, not win with rifle fire, which is what he's really saying is that, you know, more fire, you know, fire does not just mean rifle fire. And in fact, rifle fire is wildly ineffective in many, if not most tactical situations on a, on a battlefield. Uh, so you if you're using it to move and, and, and flank, then, then it's okay. Uh, but if you're using it just because you know, volume adds up, which is what he sort of seems to be saying. Uh, you're, you're being pretty dumb uh, in how you're fighting. There's two things I'd say. The first thing in response is that it seemed to me that Marshall opened up the possibility of employing more operational researchers uh, through Johns Hopkins and elsewhere to try and actually start quantifying, d- analyzing in a detailed sense how uh, the infantryman uses their weapon in in battle, or how they might just use, you know, what's the ergonomic relationship between the rifle and the soldier, and the propensity of the rifle to actually hit a target when it's when the trigger's pulled, the, bu- the bullet, the ammunition to hit a target when the trigger's pulled. And it, once you start quantifying this, then you can start to redesign the equipment around that kind of analytical activity. But Marshall provoked that as a as a possibility in a way that previously uh, hadn't been considered. And in fact, some of the stuff that came out in the 50s in response to that provocation led to not the idea that you should acquire or you should hand out automatic weapons around the, the place, uh, and so, uh, but that you should have salvo weapons around the place. And your, the, the, ch- the chance of increasing your hits would, uh, would go up because you were effectively taking the soldier out of the loop. You were relying on the technology itself to deliver the ordnance in such a way as that you could increase your chances of uh, pr- uh, producing a kill. That's number one. 
number two is is that um, my view on some of these things around the tactics and techniques employed by soldiers is that, that they are in a it's a regular case of changing in, in relation to what's going on in in the battlefield in what's in the availability of equipment and in the training and effect, uh, uh, confidence of the soldiers involved and that 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 is not that there is no sort of fixed fixed approach for achieving the kind of result that sometimes so my view is that someone who do histories is that there's a tendency to look at tactics as if there's a sort of a rule about how they work that starts starts being understood with the first world war and ends ends even you know goes right up to the, the present day and that you can trace this line as if it's a sort of elementary line in there's a sort of pro, line of progress and i and i just don't think that the evidence supports that observation despite the fact that regularly in military and historical circles that that tends to be the way uh, we portray and understand the the relationship between tactics and technology so sorry tom I, I talked over you but um that that's my that's my response to your your observation which otherwise i think is you know i think it, i read your paper and it's a good paper but i just you know that 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 doesn't just quite hit the mark especially if you start looking at this from a as i said engineers as in people who are designing equipment for the for the users um, uh, uh, Tom, can I can I jump in? Uh, so yeah, so go ahead, Robert. First of all, I want to uh, I'll, uh, I'll 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 repeat what I told Matthew during the original Twitter thread that we were all involved in is that I think that the points here he is making is probably the best articulated defense of SLA Marshall that I have heard. Um, I don't think he's I don't think he's fully right, but I think that he has done a better job of articulating the importance of Marshall and the legacy of of Marshall than anyone else that I have I have heard. So bravo, Matthew. This is uh, I, I, I we, we don't we don't see eye to eye on this, but you you've you've made uh, you've, you've really impressed me by approaching this from uh, a different angle. Um, I, I, I do agree with Tom Moore that one of Marshall's problems is that he doesn't understand tactics and that he is ultimately uh, diminishing all all tactics down to the individual. And he sees that if the individual is using their weapon, then, you know, surely the the platoon is using their weapon, all of their weapons effectively, and the company is using the weapon. So it's kind of, he's scaling it and without any appreciation of, of, uh, of combined arms or, um, or, or any of the nuances, no appreciation of terrain of the ground. It's all about the individual and their relationship to that weapon. And that is the, the ultimate bedrock of military effectiveness. Um, my, my own research has shown that, that the from, from similar studies that were done that I would actually classify as real studies in Canada, in New Zealand, um, in their armies during the Second World War, there's very little sign of um, of any of this ratio of fire stuff that Marshall was talking about. And that the emphasis is instead on fire discipline, how you don't fire your weapon. The, 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 the soldiers who fire their weapons the most are the ones who are the least well-trained. They're doing it um, for to calm themselves down, for a sense of empowering themselves in an adverse, in, a, in a, an extremely dangerous environment. And that the well-trained soldier is the one who knows not to shoot unless there's, unless there's really a call for it. And that's really the perspective that the Canadians and the New Zealanders have at the end of the Second World War. Um, and and Marshall Marshall challenges this, and it starts to it starts to uh, it starts to affect the thinking throughout um, throughout NATO countries, throughout most of the of the Allied countries in the decades afterwards. 
Now, in terms of Marshall's legacy, to kind of get back to, to Tom's question, um, I, I didn't want to I didn't want to let this opportunity go because we've got a Vietnam War historian in the room with us here, and I'm 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 really curious about this. One of the things that I've always wanted to know about um, about Marshall, and one of the things that I've never been able to research, is the legacy of the the training or the technical improvements that improvements that um that that he he helps to spur on and uh, and and now I'll, I'll put out right there that Matthew is right and uh, and that uh, that Marshall is extremely influential and it and I see that influence as something that is worthy of historical research in and of itself exactly you know where and how um he uh, he gets his tendrils into uh, uh into into military thinking is is a fascinating story in and of itself now but i want to ro- ask rob thompson um about marshall's about the, the the legacy of marshall when it comes to vietnam because by the time we get to vietnam marshall is is on the ground there um he is uh, he's he's writing more of his books david hackworth is is one of his uh, assistants and has nothing flattering to say about slam but <laughs> he has made the claim that the technical and training improvements that have been brought about in the us army because of because of his research and truly or truly or falsely um the, because of because of him his ratio of fire arguments and so forth that this has been largely cured by the time you get to vietnam and that this is that that everybody is is making full use of their weapons they're behaving aggressively they are shooting at everything now um and there's a there's a real technical question aspect to this question but there's also there are training and motivation and morale questions and I also wonder, like within the context of the Vietnam War, where you see, I mean, Rob, you are the you're the you're the Vietnam expert here. Um, the behavior of American troops, and the, I'm thinking about the the My Lai massacre. I'm thinking about you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of problematic things that are going on in Vietnam, and it seems very perverse to me to hold Vietnam up as some kind of ideal of infantry behavior from an American, from an American point of view is, is this, if this is ultimately the war that benefited the most from the innovations that SLA Marshall helped to, uh, help to create and those seeds that he planted in the 1940s and fifties, like, it, is this a good thing? I, I don't know. I haven't done the research on this. I I'm not the Vietnam historian, but we have a Vietnam historian who's here on this podcast with us. And I'm, I'm really interested in your, in your thoughts on this, Rob. Uh, I'm glad everyone thinks I'm the Vietnam War expert. That's reassuring. Um, so for <laughs> my personal research on Vu Yen, uh, this is like a, a, a probably a useful anecdote. Uh, they're during the Tet Offensive, you know, there's firefights. Well, they end up capturing a, a Pavan soldier and in the uh, interrogation, he mentions how much better the North Vietnamese soldiers are because they have fire discipline. They're not shooting at everything that moves. They only have so much ammo and they use it wisely in comparison to the American South Vietnamese who are just shooting wildly, you know, burning through ammunition. And there's physical proof behind that. And I I always found that really interesting because with Vietnam, there's like this, uh, I guess you could say, cloud hanging over the entire war that the americans were just literally shooting at everything um you know overwhelming firepower like you mentioned my 
there's other instances where entire villages are just destroyed in firefights because of the amount of ordnance being used. I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch any clip from Vietnam and you might see like, you know, helicopters just pouring fire into like whatever bunch a patch of jungle i mean so there's a lot of you know visual evidence um you can look at footage from like way for example and you just see marines blindly firing over walls um so i would definitely say vietnam is not the best example to look at of you know how to use firepower there's a there's a, there's a lot of weight behind arguments that say we use too much there and that's what I thought. And that was always my impression of, of Vietnam as well. And I, I just throw it out there that uh, that Matthew's right in that these soldiers and the, the, the people who've been training them have been influenced by SLA Marshall uh, when the, before going to Vietnam. He was he was uh, he was widely read. And these arguments about, well, nobody's using their weapons were, were taken to heart. And so you have training regimes that are trying to make everybody use their weapons as much as possible to as a remedy for what was seen as a defect during the Second World War. Um, and I I would. I would pose as a as a hypothesis anyways, that this is actually creating a whole new set of problems and is not actually creating more combat effectiveness over time and was perhaps uh, barking up the wrong tree. Well, and, and there's and it's this point that is often the case with military historians. And it's strangely about, I think, both World War One and World War Two, this intense criticism of the side that won. Right. Like, like I mean, I get it. We always want to improve. But there's always this, you know, we often forget to ask the question, you know, in these after action reports, you know, uh, you know, so there's a couple of ways of doing these. Right. One is is uh, the most common way, which is you you raise an issue and then talk about solutions. So, you know, and by an issue, you usually mean a problem. And then there's the other way of doing it, which I think is has been has been underemphasized in the in the United States Army, which is, you know, after something happens, you do a, 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 what are the things we sustain and what are the things we improve? You know, with, with equal emphasis on both. And, and I, you know, Marshall seemed to be, I mean, you, in reading his book, you're like, well, I mean, I get it. You have, you seem to have this problem, but you know, the record's fairly clear, you know, that, that the United States military took those islands that you're criticizing them for not firing enough on them. They took the ground in France and in Europe that you're criticizing them for not firing enough. And so, you know, what is the point really, uh, you know, to take it more effectively? Okay, maybe, uh, but you know, your, your, your solution, your, your identification of the problem, your solution doesn't seem to, to, uh, be really helping in that regard. And, and as you guys say, you know, in a war that the United States lost in Vietnam, uh, you know, his solution was applied, uh, with, you know, over applied and, and you see, and you see, you know, the results uh, sort of you know, speak for themselves. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I kind of, I, I'm, I'm, you know, we're kind of in, in agreement on this stuff. So it's always you know, one of these things of, and I would say in terms of a response to, to Matthew's thing, I think, you know, I agree with Robert. I think it is, it is the most cogent and the best defense I've heard of Marshall. Uh, and it's a, and it's a great point. Um, but what I would say is I think, I think that sort of like George Kennan, gets this credit for sort of being this guy who invents containment, uh, you know, as this, as this, uh, you know, uh, great overall guiding principle for the, for what we come to call the cold war. The reality is, is that what Kennan did was say something that everybody was kind of thinking, but just say it well. Right. And he, so he kind of becomes like the, you know, the, the symbol guy you put out there, uh, the, 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 like you said, the slogan, 
the slogan for what we're doing. You know, we, we put he puts a good word on it. He writes the long telegram and it's great. You know, similarly, I think with SLA Marshall, I think he says something that a lot of guys were kind of thinking, and, and I don't think they're thinking exactly the same as him, uh, that these guys aren't firing enough, but they're thinking, okay, well, this is a good way of us sort of emphasizing uh, that, you know, we need to, you know, we need to put a little more focus on how we use fires together. He's cre- come up with a good slogan. He's kind of a cat's paw for them. Like, I will throw him out there and we'll use him because he's, you know, he's a good writer. He's influential. We can use this. And so I don't think he drives it as much as, you know, they use him as the slogan. And then I think the slogan gets out of control, uh, which kind of, which can sometimes happen when you, when you choose somebody who, who, who comes up with a good slogan. And, and, and I think that would be my only response. I think Matthew's right, but I think that that would be the, the response to, to, you know, Marshall's influence there. So, so um, maybe because I'm, I just need Last to. Word for the, you, Matthew. There you go. Le, uh, well, you're very generous, and I think you're, you've all been very generous with me by conceding that I, I was, I've been onto something when it comes to the relevance of Marshall and uh, engineering problems and trying to uh, uh, achieve different or new or innovative technical solutions to to problems that you know may not. Uh, how how real they were, I, I, I can't say. But in terms of, um, well, I think you as historians have already described that, pointed out that there there aren't they weren't necessarily real. However, for those um, working in uh, the U.S. military establishments in the war immediately afterwards, they they certainly were bought into the idea that there was a problem that could be solved by uh, taking Marshall's slogan and thinking through engineering problems in terms of. Um, trying to help users more adequately make better use of uh, improved technical solutions and, in this case, generating greater fire. But the broader point that you were making about um, Vietnam, and you could run that further forwards now into the 21st century, about engineers and Marshall sloganizing uh, the importance of firepower in terms of winning the, the firefight, I think, and in terms of winning the battle, even maybe we could be, be so bold as to say. I think you know a little bit of me is reluctant to say that engineers are—it's—it's it's the fault of engineers and those looking to optimize the employment of fire of of military capability to um, to suggest that they are somehow an error for political choices uh, that are part of a broader strategic challenge associated with in in vietnam's case containing communism uh and subsequently as the cold war progressed you know there's a i think i can absolutely i can absolutely say that um, engineers have provided exquisite solutions that are tempting to use by both people by by those in the armed forces and by politicians but i'm i'm a little bit reluctant to say well it's it's all the engineers fault really this 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 increased ratio of fire, if only they hadn't come up with a, 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 a solution to a problem that we didn't really have, we might have not got ourselves into a sticky situation in Vietnam. Uh, that system, it, in the background, I'm thinking to myself, well, possibly, but also there's a lot more going on uh, uh, in relation to uh, whether to go to war and what types of techniques uh, and, uh, and procedures, tactics and, and uh, operational uh, approaches you might adopt uh, when it comes to um, fighting a, a, a an insurgency uh, in Vietnam, and even you know we're, we've seen more recently um, as as uh, we've found ourselves in, embroiled in a number of um, uh, difficult uh, situations, the, the the technical solutions don't always provide the the, the answers, 
but you know um, we might be tempted to assume that they always will but that requires some kind of um, decision political moderation um, and a, a, a description about what 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 the political intent is as we employ these types of equipment yeah so I, I think we I think the uh, I think the technocratic turn of the post-world war ii world uh is is something for there's a whole nother podcast to be had there uh and and all of its far-reaching effects uh so um i think we're you know we're out of time for this one so uh shame and and i'm not blaming the engineers uh them i'm blaming sla marshall for vietnam (laughs) i think that's if anybody takes anything away from that that's that's, that should be the no okay uh but uh i want to i want to i want to thank you uh rob thompson robert angan and matthew ford for joining us to talk about sla marshall and thanks to all of you for listening in please send us your comments and suggestions on this program and all the programs we offer through war room we're always interested in hearing from you and please please subscribe to a better piece and after you've subscribed to a better piece on the podcatcher of your choice we hope that you also rate and review and share We look forward to having you uh, all join us again soon. And until next time, for more room, I'm Tom Brasino. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.